I'm Jay Hendricks, a pastor at our downtown church. I oversee our college ministry as well as our worship and production. If you are newer around Midtown and haven't yet filled out a Connect card, please click the button on our homepage. We'd love to get to know you and connect you with our church family. If you are already a member, which means you've completed our 101 Midtown class and you're ready for the next step, consider signing up for our 201 Life Group class. The class teaches you how to become a core group member in your life group. A core group member has an active role within the life group to help carry out some of the leadership. Our next class meets virtually on Sundays starting November 1st. Pre-registration is required, so visit our events page to sign up. On October 25th, we'll have our outdoor night of prayer and worship at 5 p.m. at our downtown campus. Be sure to bring a mask and a chair along with you as we spend some time singing and praying together for our city. We'll be partnering with Transitions Homeless Shelter as we collect new men's and women's undergarments and basic hygiene items. So before you attend, be sure to pick up some new products to donate for when you get there. We're so excited to partner with our Lord and our city in bringing dignity and care to folks in need. You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. We're just going to jump right in today. This is what Jesus says. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So at the beginning here of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is beginning to shift a little bit into the second half of his, or the second third of his Sermon on the Mount. And this is what he says. In verse 1, he basically sets up what this whole next section of his sermon is going to be about. And if we grasp what Jesus is talking about in verse 1, we'll basically know what he's doing in the next chunk of verses as well. Here he gives us this warning to beware, to look out for, or be on guard against practicing our righteousness in front of other people, in order to be seen by them. Biblically speaking, righteousness is about right relationships, okay? So it's it's about right relationships with God, with others, and even with yourself, with fellow human beings and the world around us. And it's it's not simply like keeping a set of rules or having good behavior, though on some level it might include those things, but it's all the ways that we contribute to the flourishing of the world around us according to God's good design, both in ourselves and in those we interact with, right? And so this is actually embodied in the three examples that Jesus is going to go on to give us in the rest of this chapter. So if you look with me at verse 2, where he says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Then in verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. And then in verse 16, And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. So he gives us giving, prayer, and fasting. And these were generally considered to be the three big practices of holistic of a holistic righteous life in the Hebrew tradition. So giving was indicative of right living or love towards others. This is sort of what it typified. The way, the way it reads might make you think about like charitable giving or tithing or something like that. And it, it certainly included those elements, but it was a bit more than that. And it's 
kind of understand it, it's important for us to keep in mind that in the first century world, there was no such thing as state-run welfare. There was nothing, nothing like that going on. If the poor and oppressed in a community were going to be cared for, it was going to happen through the generosity of that community. All right? So in some respects, you, consider, you could consider what Jesus is talking about here um, a lot like our, um, our justice efforts towards the poor and the marginal, marginalized in our own society. So it includes things like our financial giving, for sure, but it also includes advocacy and our serve the city partnerships and anything like that that we also do. Now, prayer obviously was a display of our relationship with God. It was about rightly relating to God or expressing our love towards God. And fasting, very similarly, dealt with righteousness within ourselves. So we talked about this several months ago back in our Lent series, but we talked about how fasting was a spiritual discipline that was used to train one's dependency onto God uh, by abstaining from other earthly things, most specifically uh, food. And with fasting, what we're talking about is we're talking about personal spiritual disciplines that are meant to grow our love for God and love for others. So with these three things, what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's hitting on all the ways that we might pursue what God calls righteousness. While we, may, while we might express those things differently today, the point is, is that Jesus is talking holistically about who we are and what we do. How we love others, how we love God, if it has to do with restoring the world to how it is supposed to be, whatever that action may be. This is what Jesus is saying. This is at least a version of righteousness. Now, it's worth noting here right out of the gate that Jesus assumes that his people will do righteousness. He assumes that as God's people, we will live righteously. Jesus says, when you give to the needy, and when you pray, and when you fast, not if you do these things, but when you do these things. The expectation is that as citizens of Jesus's kingdom, as followers of Jesus's way, we will in fact live righteous lives, lives that contribute to the flourishing of the world as God has designed it to be. And I bring that up here right out of the gate, just just to make mention of this. This It's something of a side note, but but I've talked to people who try to take Jesus's teaching here and say, look, what Jesus is saying is he doesn't want me to be fake. He doesn't want me to be fake. He wants me to be genuine. And so since my heart isn't really into all of this, I'm just not going to do anything. Listen, it's a side note, but if that's you, just let me say this quickly. I love you, but you're wrong, all right? I love you, but you're wrong. He expects us to embody these things in his kingdom. But Jesus is issuing a warning here to us. He is issuing a warning. He's saying, be on guard against doing these things just so you look good in front of other people. Be on guard against practicing your righteousness, against living righteously just so, just in front of other people so that they might think well of you. And I love this about Jesus because he's really coming after something here that is really, that we know lies at the heart of much of the human condition. The reality that there is always this temptation within us, no matter what your beliefs may be, to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. And to the people who do that, Jesus actually assigns them something of a label. This later on becomes something of a Jesusism. He calls them hypocrites. 
And as best we can tell, Jesus was the first person to use this word in this way. Prior to Jesus, the word in Greek that we translate hypocrite, which is just hypocrites, uh, it, w- it wasn't originally pejorative. Like it wasn't originally like a negative or uh, a slanderous thing to say. It just referred to an actor or a performer in a play. That's all the word actually means. But notice how Jesus is using it here. Notice what he's saying. Jesus is saying that those who do what they do just to be seen doing it by others, those folks are just actors. Those folks are just playing a part. They're just performers. They're not actually the real thing. And what I am after is the real thing. Their righteousness is what we might call theatrical righteousness, meaning a performance for the applause of others. It's a theatrical righteousness. Now, obviously, Jesus is speaking here to a religious culture, to people who show off their religious piety, all right? Uh, And that's probably the first image that pops into your head when we think of this word hypocrite. Like most of our minds, when we hear hypocrite, usually we we go to some image of probably some stodgy, straight-laced religious man who walks around like he's just holier-than-thou type of a thing. But since our culture isn't really one where people by and large like parade their righteousness around, like nobody's really parading their prayer life or sounding off bullhorns when they give to a cause or anything like that, like this can be a little bit difficult to translate to our context and to even think about how does this actually apply to me? But I would submit that if we were to dig down a little bit, I, I believe that even if it's not overtly religious looking for some of us, that a little bit of this mentality lives in each of us as well. Here's what I mean. Most everyone wants other people to think we're better than we actually are. Most all of us want people to think that we are better than we actually are. So for example, do you ever feel the pressure to like maintain a certain image? Do you ever feel pressure to maintain an image, to keep up uh, appearance in front of other people? I don't know about you, but I know, I know that I certainly do, certainly do. There's this thing in me that just wants to be seen a certain way, that wants people to think of me in a certain light, for people to think that I'm smart and wise and that I know what I'm doing. There's this thing in me that seeks to carry myself in a certain way that gives people the impression that, oh, he's a good dude. He's a good father. He's a good husband. He, he knows what he's doing. He's, he's doing it right. And it's a little bit weird for me, too, because honestly, my job obviously, is a little bit public. Like, people see me quite, quite a bit, and I find myself at times, I'm a mixed bag of motivations, even, about the things that I do. Like, I genuinely want to teach and lead each of us in the way of Jesus, and I also want you to think that I'm pretty good doing it, just to be honest. And it's weird. Like, it's, it's real weird, because both of those things, at times, can exist within me. And truthfully, I find that this has only been heightened for me, at least, in our current cultural moment, right? To post, for example, like to post stuff on the internet that shows the world what I'm about and how I'm one of the good guys, like how I'm on the right side here. Like, hey, look, I spoke up about this thing that I know everybody is telling me that I needed to speak up for. Look, I did that. I'm one of the good guys here. That's who I am. That is exactly the type of thing that Jesus is talking about here. And for some of us, this looks really religious. It looks like making sure that people think of you as the good Christian person, a person who goes to church every Sunday, a person who reads their Bible and prays, all right? 
But for some of us, it's not even all that religious looking, right? Like for some of us, it's really religious looking and for others of us, it's not. Like you aren't concerned with, what, if, with whether or not people think that you love God per se, but you're totally concerned with whether or not they think you're on the right side of history. You're totally concerned whether or not they think you stand up for the right causes or at bare minimum are an authentic and genuine person. You don't have to look any further than how we handle ourselves on social media to know that our culture is seeped in this. This is the air we breathe. You can call it virtue signaling or slacktivism or whatever you want to call it, but social media has become this one-stop shop for righteous-looking theater. Look at me. Look at what I'm about. Look at what I stand for. Look at how good I am. And we treat likes and retweets as justification and validation for who we are and what we do. And look, I'm not saying that's bad because it's not. Like we need to speak up about things like injustice. That's actually a very righteous thing to do. All I'm saying is we often do it with a theatrical motivation. We often do it to appear better towards others than we actually are. I ran across an old friend on social media, for instance, recently who said, hey, Christians, if you're not being vocal about, insert whatever their cause was, just know that the world is watching. And it struck me like, oh, is that how we're doing this now? Is this, is this how we gauge our righteousness by what I tweet or don't tweet about? But we do feel that way. It's very common. Whether it be posting something inspirational about my morning Bible reading or my alliance with a social justice issue, and I'm, listen, I'm not even really on Instagram or Twitter or any of that, but even I still feel this desire to win the admiration of people, to do the right-looking things to gain their approval, whoever they may be. Now, is it wrong for me to read my Bible in the morning? Of course not. It's actually wonderful. I wish more of us would do that. I really do. Is it wrong for me to post a picture about how good my time with Jesus was? Of course not. Of course not. That may spur others on in a way that most of our social media is filled with junk and it just inflames us. It might actually do some positive and encouraging good. But we have to ask, what is my motivation for wanting to do that? Why am I wanting to say these things or present this image of myself? Is my motivation wanting others to see my good deeds? Is it to spur them on or to build up some kind of image for myself to make them think I'm better than I really am? And maybe you do it in other ways. Like, maybe you're the person who fishes for compliments every time you interact with another person, or the type of person that always draws attention to yourself in conversation, who always makes sure to drop the good things you said or that you did into whatever the dialogue may be, just so they know, you know, that you do and think the right type of thing. Or maybe for you, it's not in what you do or say, but in what you don't say. Maybe you're never really honest about your failures or your sin. Maybe you just sort of dull the edges on the things that you confess so that people will think you're actually better than you are. The point, is, the point isn't which group does it or in what ways do you do this, but that this temptation in some form or fashion lives in you. The point is that we are constantly tempted to live for the applause and approval of other people whether that's your Instagram followers or your family or your parents or your friends or your ideological party or your church or even your life group. And the temptation is to let that applause become the driving motivation behind what we do. And Jesus warns his people to be on guard against this. He warns us against this motivation. But I find the way that he actually words his warning 
to be very interesting. Let's check it out together. Go back to verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for, the love, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And one more time in the last example, verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Jesus' warning here initially seems so unsevere, right? Unsevere. Like he doesn't threaten theatrical righteousness with the fires of hell or lightning bolts from heaven or anything like that. He simply says, those who do what they do to be seen by others have received their reward. They've received it. Essentially, they've got all that they're ever going to get. And he just leaves it there. And if we don't pause to think about it, we might actually fail to see just how sobering that actually is. Here's what I mean. He's saying that that momentary rush of dopamine, that temporary boost of your self-esteem, that momentary affirmation given to you by that person or that group of people, at least until you do something that upsets them, those little heart icons accumulating in your fake online world, that's what you get. There's your reward. That's it. He's touching on a reality mentioned in Proverbs 29, 25 that says the fear of man, which is living for the approval of others. The fear of man is a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man is a snare. It's a trap. It's a trap. It looks and maybe feels for a moment really appealing, but it doesn't actually give us what we're looking for. The point being that treating the applause of others as the ultimate reward in life is ultimately a futile endeavor because the approval of people is fleeting and insufficient. This is what he's trying to get us to understand, that the approval of people is fleeting and insufficient. When I say it's fleeting, what I mean is that it doesn't last. The approval of people just simply doesn't last. Like you have it for a moment and then it's gone then it's absolutely gone. And then you gotta do something else to get it back again, either from that person or from someone else. I mean, consider for a moment, like how many people in our culture alone have fallen from proverbial grace, right? Like we have a whole new phrase for it now, cancel culture. People who were once held in a high regard and applauded by the masses are now condemned. It can turn on a dime. You can be praised one day and cursed the next or more likely, just forgotten about the next day. Your posts get swallowed up in the ocean of online activity. Your good deed gets forgotten with the passage of time. In the case of my sermons, I've learned that they're generally forgotten by Tuesday, all right? And this just makes it so insufficient. It makes it such an insufficient thing to build your life on because it puts us in this spot where we just always need more. We always need someone else to impress, always need someone else who, there's always someone else who doesn't know us or hasn't seen what we've done or doesn't know how great we think we are that we need to inform. It's like a hamster wheel, like we never stop chasing it. There has never been a moment in your life or mine where, you, where we went, you know, I think after people recognizing this thing that I've done, I actually don't need any more human approval. 
I think I'm actually good. I think I've got enough for my life now and I'm good to go. No. And what happens is, is we end up living with our emotional state hinging on what other people are or aren't saying about us or what they might be thinking about us. And we wind up constantly managing our image, right? Constantly manage our, managing our image, often living into stereotypes of whoever's approval we're actually chasing. So we got to think a certain way and dress a certain way and we got to do certain things. we got to act a certain way and vote a certain way, often even conforming to their ideas of righteousness over and above what gods are. We wind up living under the tyranny of the approval and disapproval of other people, which just to be honest, it suffocates us and others. And in a strange turn of events, instead of contributing to the flourishing of the world God has made as we were meant to do, what actually winds up happening is we wind up contributing to the destruction of it as we spread insecurity and fear as far as the eye can see. And I want you to hear me on that. Like what, whatever means you are using to garner the praise and approval of other people, it will never be enough. It will never be enough. You will never speak out about enough social issues. You will never help enough people. You will never quote the Bible enough or pray enough. You will never get enough praise. There will never be a moment where you go, I'm good now. I've done enough things. I've gotten enough approval. I'm a good enough person. I think I'm gonna take some time off from all of that. It will never happen because the fear of man will not let you do that. It will not let you do that. It's a snare. It's a trap. If you live by the approval of people, you will die still wondering if you have it. And so towards this thing that so many of us think is the ultimate reward, Jesus just drops this, that's all you'll get. You've received your reward. That's all there is to it. And he does so almost as if he knows that there is something better that we could be seeking. So a buddy of mine was telling me about how the other night he made brownies for his kids and they had no idea. He made brownies uh, for their little dessert after dinner and his kids had no idea. And so after, after they ate dinner, his kids asked him if they could get a piece of candy out of the box where they keep all of the Halloween candy that they hadn't eaten yet. Obviously, by this time of year, it was old and disgusting. Like it was over a year old and absolutely gross, but his kids still wanted it. And so he told them, hey, if that's, if that's all you want, if you want to settle for leftover Halloween candy from last year, just knock yourself out. And apparently his littlest ones got really excited and they just took off running for the pantry like, yes, we're gonna get candy. But his oldest one, which he should be proud of her by, by, uh, for the record, he goes, she goes, wait, settle? What? What do you mean settle? Is there something better we could actually have? And he just smiled and he was like, you're right. And he pulled out the brownies. And of course, like everyone just exploded with excitement and came running back. And that, that is the sort of thing that Jesus is actually doing here. He's saying, you want to settle for the acceptance, approval, and admiration of others as the defining goal of your life? Okay, knock yourself out. And for those of us who previously thought that this was the greatest treasure possible on earth, he's encouraging us to stop and say, wait a minute. What do you mean settle? Do, do you mean there's something better that we could have? And Jesus is about to bring down those uh, brownies. Look back at what he says next in each example. Verse three. 
But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse six, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 17, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. When Jesus says do these things in secret, he's not saying that the point is to hide them, okay? He's not saying that outwardly you should look unrighteous, but surprise, behind the curtain, there was all this good stuff all along. That's not, not what he's after here, okay? We have to remember that this, this is one part of a larger sermon, and just one page ago, he called his followers to be salt and light, that their good works might be before others so that they lead them to glorify God who is in heaven. When he says secret here, he's addressing motivation. And Jesus' solution to our performance problem is to change the audience. What really ought to motivate the things that you do isn't the notice of others, but rather the notice of God. To be quite honest with you, it blows my mind that Jesus doesn't just say, but do your righteousness before God's eyes because that's the right thing to do. It's not what he says. He instead says, do your righteousness where God sees because God, your Father, will reward you. Now, look, I come from a tradition that avoided talking about God rewarding what we do, all right? And maybe some of you came from a place like that too. And I understand where it comes from. Like the clear teaching of scripture is that we don't earn salvation. Like we don't merit anything like that from God. Salvation is an unmerited gift through Christ. So talking about rewards often feels like we're tippy-toeing in to heresy of some kind. But to be clear, Jesus is not talking about salvation here, all right? He's talking about something different. The simple fact that he puts it into the context of a relationship between a father and his children ought to actually remove any commercial element we might be tempted to think about what he's saying here. Here's the thing. We are born with a desire to be noticed. Parents of kids know this, right? Like kids are always saying, mom, dad, watch me, watch me. Look what I can do. Watch me ride my bike. Watch me jump on the couch. Watch me climb this tree way higher than you're comfortable with. That last one might just be our family, but whatever. Like, but kids clamor for the eyes of their parents. They clamor for the good job or the well done or the smile of their mom or dad. Like, this is my experience every single day when I come home. Every day when I come home, it's, Daddy, watch me beat this level in Mario. Daddy, listen to this joke. Isn't it so funny? Daddy, look at how strong I am. And my usual response is something like, dude, that is awesome. Man, you are getting so good at that. Oh, dude, you are so funny. And I smile and I delight in it because these are my kids and I love them. And I love that they want to make me smile. And I love that they want to show me what they're learning. And I love that they want to show me what they're growing in capability to do. I love all of that, like it brings me such joy and delight to see them growing and becoming the people that I'm trying to train them to be. And my kids will do the same things over and over and over again. And I never get tired of it. They tell me the same jokes for the hundredth time because they love to hear their daddies laugh. And part of what gives them joy is bringing me joy. They aren't doing it because they think it makes me love them any more or less. They do it because they love me and they love to make me smile. 
And the point that Jesus is making is that you are made for the same. You are made for the same, but not merely for your earthly parents, but for your father who is in heaven, that you have a father in heaven who loves you and you were made for his delight and his applause. Friends, I want you to know that you were made to be seen. You were made to be noticed and known. It's a part of what it means to be made in the image of God. You were made to be seen. You were made to be loved and adored and delighted in and approved of, but not by the eyes of men, but not by the eyes of other people, but by the eyes of God, your Father. And that is the reward of the Father. His eyes, his delight, his notice. That is the right kind of notice we should be seeking. That God, your Father, sees you. And he sees everything that you do, regardless of what others see. And when you do the things that align with his will, when you love others, when you pursue him, when you choose to live for his eyes, he delights in every square inch of that. I found that I love the way that C.S. Lewis talks about this in his work entitled The Weight of Glory. He says, the promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall find approval shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness is to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. Somewhere along the way, I fear that many of us started believing that God doesn't delight in the things that we do. And I understand where it comes from. We don't want to give the false impression that we do anything to earn anything from God. But to believe that God doesn't look at what you do and take pleasure in it is absolutely ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous and not at all what the scriptures teach. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, we're encouraged that whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please God. It's our aim to please God because he can be pleased. We are to walk as children of light to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord according to Ephesians 5. And 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. He takes pleasure in us. God takes pleasure in you and what you do. And I love how Lewis says it. He says that it seems like this should be impossible. It seems like it's too much glory and honor for us to bear that the Father would bestow that kind of pleasure on lowly creatures like us. But he concludes, but he does. But he does. He delights in you. And it is important that you know this as a follower of Jesus. According to uh, theologian Frederick Dale Bruner, he, he puts it like this. He says, it's important that believers know that their heavenly father notices what they do and notices not in a merely deistic, merely in a deistic way, like a distant grandfather, but in a personal way, as a living father. Disciples should know that their sacrifices are worth it, that their bucking public opinion and visibility gets a response somewhere. 
that human beings are made in the image of God to be noticed and to want to be noticed by God. And Jesus does not give techniques for eliminating this passion to be noticed, but rather he redirects it. The only way to kill theatrical righteousness in your life is to starve it out, is to stop worrying about other people's eyes and trust that God's eyes are actually the only ones that matter. And to do what you do for an audience of one. He delights in your pursuit. He delights in what you do. He delights in you. And if Jesus is to be believed here, every act of love towards your neighbor, every pursuit you make to know him, every discipline you undertake to become like him, every step in following the way of Jesus is seen and celebrated by your heavenly father. There is no gift that you give, no sacrifice that you make, no prayer that you pray, no encouragement that you share, no word or deed that will ever go unnoticed or uncelebrated by your father who is in heaven. And man, how good is that to know? How good is that to know? But you know, the best part, the best part isn't just that God takes notice, but that because of Jesus, we can have the confidence that this will never fade and it will never change. It will never fade and it will never change. What makes God's delight better than the delight of others is that it is not something that you can lose. That in Christ, this is not something that you can lose. While the approval and acceptance and admiration of other people is fickle and it changes with the wind, because of Jesus, God's approval and acceptance of you is 100% secure. The good news of the gospel is not that God doesn't care about what we do or why we do it, but that what we do and why we do it will never change how he feels towards you. It will never change how he feels towards you. And while God takes special delight in our pursuit of him and his righteousness, just like a parent takes special delight in their child's obedience over their disobedience, right? Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that forgives and cleanses us from all sin and justifies our standing as children of God, there is nothing that you can do that could change any part of God's love for you. There is nothing you could do that would change God's acceptance and approval of you in Jesus. And that means that when it comes to what we do, we no longer have to perform for him, but we get to simply enjoy what brings him delight with him. We can be free from the hamster wheel of approval. We can be free from the tyranny of trying to be good enough. We can be set free from fear and self-doubt and insecurity to receive the true life that Jesus has come to bring us. And that's what I want for us. That's what I want for our church family, to be free from the fear of man and get to live in the freedom of the Father who loves us. So there's not like one big take home for you guys today, all right? Instead, I just want to leave you with some questions to ask yourself. I want to leave you with some questions. Real simply, like, what audience do you live for? What audience do you live for? The audience of people or the audience of God? What groups do you tend to want to impress? Who are the people that you, f- you want to think well of you? 
Are you currently living as though their approval matters more than God's? Is their approval what drives you? Like genuinely, what actually drives you to follow Jesus? Is it Jesus himself or is it what other people think about what you do? Is public you more righteous than private you? When you're around people, are you a little bit more like Jesus than when you are alone? Who prays more? Who sings more? Who serves more? The you that people see or the you behind closed doors? I just want you to consider those questions and let's repent together. Let's put our methods of self-promotion down and receive the never-ending delight of our Father. Because as that passage from Proverbs says, the fear of man is a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Let me pray for you. Father God, we, um, we, we want to be yours. We want to live for your eyes, not the eyes of others. And help us with that. God, help us to see that your delight in us is never fading and never changing because of Jesus, but that you do truly delight in us. And that is far better than the fickle delight that people might give to us from time to time. God, help us to see that building our life off of the approval of other people, it's like building our life on sand. Like, I mean, it's just a terrible foundation. And it doesn't lead to life, but it leads us just to insecurity and fear and destruction. And God, I just pray that you would set us free from those things. God, the reality of it is, is we need your spirit to help us see all the ways that we are infected with this. I know even I, as I've been prepping for the sermon, have realized more and more areas where I do, I live for the approval of people instead of for your eyes. God, help us to repent. Help us to trust in you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.